today on Ag News Daily. Verify helps growers uh, and beekeepers assess the hive quality of the hives used for pollination. Uh, so we use infrared image analysis to uh, predict the colony size. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. It certainly is a Friday after all, Ashton. We are kicking things off today with the first of just many wonderful AgGrad 30 Under 30 interviews coming every Friday here for really the next 30 weeks, Ashton. Yes, Delaney, I'm very excited to kick things off actually talking with one of the folks on the cohort, but you know, these people are just so great. We've had a few of them on the podcast already. So uh, you might just have to, you know, list some of those names so people can go back and listen to those episodes if they so please. Absolutely, folks. But we'll get to that interview here in just a little bit. But Ashton, let's first kick things off with some news for today. I'm going to kick things off here with a piece of news coming out of Russia. We've been watching closely to see if Russia will indeed limit their wheat exports for this year. We know that that um, Russian wheat export tax has gone into place now. According to their director general at consultant ProZerno, Vladimir, okay, well, I'm going to butcher this last name, but I think it's Petrochenko. Um He said that at best, Russian wheat exports this season are going to be seen at a 37.6 million tons. And he said that's best case scenario. On the low end of the spectrum, he could see low or wheat exports getting as low as 34 million tons. Okay, so let's compare this number to normal years when they don't have these type of quotas and duties in place. We saw record shipments for the 2020-2021 marketing year were set at about 40 to 41 million metric tons. So we are definitely going to see a reduction in wheat exports. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a huge reduction if we do see a 37 million number. But if we see a 34, 32, even lower, you know, that is a pretty significant reduction in wheat yields or wheat exports, I should say. So we will continue to watch that story. If we do see a reduction by 10 million tons, could be enough to push markets around a little bit, Ashton. Delaney, you probably did a lot better at pronouncing that name than I would have. I have the most trouble, it seems like, trying to pronounce names all the time. Well, Ashton, I'll tell you a fun fact that some of our listeners might know. Um, I studied abroad in Bulgaria for a semester in college, and Bulgaria is located pretty close to Russia. I had Russian roommates. I learned Bulgarian while I was there, and it uses the Cyrillic alphabet, which is the same alphabet that Russia uses for their language so i've got a little bit better handle on it if it was a japanese name or something else probably shouldn't turn to me but i feel pretty confident that i can pronounce most cyrillic looking names somewhat correctly delaney i think that you've lived like nine different lives you're like a cat every (laughs) time we talk i feel like i learned something new that you've done well ashton that's my goal is to yes live nine different lives just like a cat (laughs) Well, Delaney, most of my news that I have for today is really just updates. I don't have any like hard hitting stuff, I suppose. But yesterday I reported on two of those Spanish ships that had over 2000 head of cattle on them, um, you know, being shipped to Turkey that didn't turn out because they were suspicious of these cows being infected with blue tongue. And today I have a little bit of an update because those ships are now docked. 
They are being tested by veterinarians for this blue tongue virus. And if the vet's inspection shows that the cows, in fact, do test positive for blue tongue, which I have found out causes lameness and hemorrhaging, they will be immediately cold. And in that case, the carcasses can't be sold and the shipment would have to be written off, which is just a pretty big loss of money. I think it was the, the, the owners of the cattle right now, since they were never sold and on these ships for about two months, the, just being on those ships, the owners spent over a million dollars trying to take care of them. So it's going to be a, a pretty big loss for them if, in fact, they do have to cull these cows. But if they are cleared, the cattle can be resold for live export. The Agriculture Ministry in Spain said that it would take appropriate decisions after analyzing information from the inspection. And like I said, they were being inspected earlier today um, on Spanish time. I don't know exactly the um, time difference, but I don't have any answers as of yet on whether or not they did come back positive for blue tongue. Um, but I'm going to keep my eyes out for it. Um, hopefully we'll get some answers next week since it is Friday. But I'm pretty anxious to see about it because I think that this story is it's quite interesting just from an animal welfare standpoint, but also from the standpoint because I, I learned today that about 15 head of cattle died on this trip. And um, when you have cattle transporting on ships, you can either you know throw these bodies overboard or you can store them, mm -hmm. which just causes even more money. And so I just I think that it's quite interesting and I'm interested to see how they further deal with this issue. I didn't even think about that, Ashton. Yeah, I guess you don't really have a lot of options if you're out to sea and you've got sick animals. I know. I, I mean, you know, throwing them overboard, I understand that that's a good option, but it's pretty wacky to me. Yeah. But, you know, just, I mean, they are in deep, deep waters. I don't think anybody's going to be swimming out there, but uh, I guess some sharks have a pretty good dinner. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. They've got a little steak for dinner. I don't know if uh, I like that steak, though, being on a ship no. for over two months. No, probably not. Probably not. Uh, Ash and I have a piece of follow-up news here. We continue to see members of the Biden administration cabinets being confirmed. We saw Catherine Tai, who is the U.S. Trade Representative nomination, testify yesterday in front of multiple committees, including the Ag Committee and the Senate Finance Committee. And it appears that Ag was on center stage or took center stage, I should say, for a lot of the discussion and questions that were asked to Mrs. Tai. And I think really, I saw this headline and I thought that was very, very interesting. Basically, her stance or she said the Biden administration's stance is going to be to seek to avoid the practice of creating winners and losers as it tries to expand international trade. She said, quote, with respect to our trade policies in the past several decades, we often fall into a pattern where one sector of our economy and one segment of our workers feel like their livelihoods were sacrificed for another part of our economy. So she's not necessarily talking winners and losers when it comes to the United States versus China. She's talking domestic industries. She said that we need to break out of the pattern of placing emphasis on certain industries and their relationship to the trade negotiations as opposed to others. And I think that was largely in reference to the fact that agriculture does um, become a focal point of a lot of trade deals. So we'll continue to follow that story. She's not confirmed yet, but it's expected that she will uh, soar through her nomination process and be confirmed. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that one, Ashton. 
Delaney, another story that we have been keeping an eye out on is the spread of H5N8 bird flu. And I believe it was earlier this week that I reported that some cases of human contact or human um, infection from this strain of bird flu had been reported in Russia. And that kind of raised the question on how it can be spread, you know, animal to human, human to human. Um, and so I have a little bit of a follow-up. It's it's pretty short, but um, the, the risk of human-to-human -human spread of that strain of bird flu appears to be low after it was identified and worked through with the World Health Organization. Of course, back in 2009, 2010, we saw the H1N1 spread of bird flu. And that uh, raised a couple of questions on whether or not this strain would be the same. I don't exactly know the, the big differences between these two different strains. I think that the H5N8 strain that we're seeing now is a little bit um, more harsh, at least in birds. But I thought it was pretty interesting because those seven people in Russia who were found to be infected with, with the H5N8 strain were all asymptomatic after the you know outbreak occurred. But the World Health Organization just kind of reiterated that they are reaching out to those people who had close contact with those cases of a bird flu. And they are still committed to finding vaccines and, you know, all that they can about this strain. But uh, just kind of interesting that they were asymptomatic. I have never had bird flu personally, so I don't know what the symptoms would even really look like in humans. But uh, just another story that I will be on the hunt for more information for. Yeah, I remember Ashton, however many years ago that was now, a lot of folks in uh, Eastern Asia, China specifically, broke out with bird flu symptoms. But I don't recall that there was, I think it made its way to the U.S., but I don't think there was a large percentage of our population that was infected with that. That's been so long ago. I think I was probably in high school when that happened. So maybe even middle school. So yeah. it's hard for me to remember exactly, but... Yeah, I was nine or 10 about that time. So I mean, that was like peak hypochondriac mm. for me. And so I remember the bird flu. I never got it. I mean, I'm a hypochondriac times a thousand. So I remember trying to like be super careful. And of course, I'm 10. I don't know anything about it. So I was being a super weirdo about trying to get bird flu. But either way. <laughs> All right. And we know from yesterday or earlier this week, we don't like birds. So that all adds up <laughs> in my mind. Ashton, I tell you what, I've got one more story here as we lead into the markets. We watched corn take a tumble again for the second trading day in a row. Some folks may be asking why, and I think I've got the answer here. We saw yesterday's weekly export sales show a pretty steep decline in Soybeans especially, but really all across the grain board. We saw corn take a dive as well as wheat, and that pushed commodities lower. Uh, yesterday, the soybean side of things really was the bad bearer of bad news. I believe it was a 62% decline in last week's market report, or yesterday's weekly sales report, which of course reflects last week's sales, but a 62% decline for the week prior. And that has certainly pushed things down, which calls into, the, into question, you know, are we seeing starting to see signs of a demand cool off, which is something we'll continue to discuss on our upcoming Market Monday episodes. But Ashton, if you're done with news, I think I'll kick things off here in the markets. Well, I did just want to talk about one thing um, kind of concerning 
rural infrastructure, because I think that that's been a hot topic of discussion. I thought it was pretty interesting because I didn't even know that this was even a law. But cooperatives in Wisconsin can now hold annual member meetings and special member meetings remotely. Their governor, Tony Evers, signed Act 5, which is the new law that allows the use of technology for member meetings yesterday. And the law also allows a cooperative's board of directors to adopt bylaws that are effective only in an emergency and provides emergency powers to a cooperative in anticipation of or during an emergency. Those cooperatives lobbied for the changes after having meetings restricted to in-person by statute, even though the coronavirus pandemic limited most in-person functions. And like I said, I think rural infrastructure you know, concerning broadband and um, rural healthcare has been major topics of discussion while we are going through this pandemic. And I think that that just adds to that. So those cooperatives in Wisconsin uh, took a big leap yesterday, sounds like. It certainly does, Ashton. And as I mentioned, commodities took a big leap, unfortunately, to the downside today. Ashton, what do you say we uh, kick the markets off here? Let's do it. Well, Looking across the screen, today's sell-off wasn't quite as ugly as yesterday's, but we still did see a lot of red across the screen. Other than the front-month March corn contract here, which closed up three-quarters of a cent to close at 5.55.5, the May up two and a quarter to close at 5.47.5. In soybeans today, the March contract up excuse me, down three quarters of a cent to close at 14.05 and a quarter to the May, lost three quarter three cents to close at 14.04 and a quarter. In the wheat pits today, the Chicago March contract shed 16 and three quarters cents to close at 655. The May down 15 and a half to close at 660 and a quarter. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today. Live cattle unfortunately had a little bit of a limit down day today in the February contract. Of course, that is expired already, but that I think carried over into the deferreds as the April contract shed $1.67 and a half to close at 120 flat. The June down $1.07 to close at one eighteen forty two and a half. In feeder cattle today, the March contract ended $1.75 lower to close at one thirty eight sixty seven and a half. The April down two dollars fifty cents to close at one forty two fifty seven and a half. And in lean hogs today, the April contract down two dollars sixty cents to close at eighty seven fifteen. The May down two twenty seven to close at eighty eight eighty seven and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. The March contract down thirty one cents to close at sixteen twenty five. The April down a penny to close at seventeen thirty nine. Now Ashton, we've already done a couple of the ag grad thirty under thirty interviews. So remind me who we're talking to today. Today, we are talking to Ellie Sims of the B Corp. Well, for our first conversation with an ag grad, 30 under 30, we are talking to Ellie Sims, who is a co-founder of the B Corp. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, Ashton, thanks so much for having me. So before we get started talking about the B Corp and all of that fun stuff, I want to talk a little bit more about you because you're in one, a part of the newest cohort of ag grads, 30 under 30, which is very exciting. So why don't you tell us how you got there a little bit more about your background, where you went to college and all that great stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I went to school at Indiana University, uh, which is not an ag grad or an ag or land grant school. Um, and uh, but I was really interested in in food production and particularly how uh, we move uh, our food systems uh, into uh, the future with all of the challenges that are coming uh our way in agriculture. Uh, so I studied environmental science uh, in undergrad and information systems and policy in grad school. Um, really just interested in those issues. I got interested in bees uh, pretty randomly. I just volunteered for a beekeeper one summer after freshman year and I found it fascinating um, and really fell in love with it. And because of the honeybees importance in food production, it was sort of a, a really cool fit to start a beekeeping program at our university uh, through a grant. And then that grew to a club, uh, which I started with some other students, including my co-founder, Wyatt. And then it's kept snowballing and we were encouraged to dream bigger and figure out uh, what we could do to help the industry. So we started the B Corp Uh we are having our fifth anniversary uh, this month uh, on the 25th. So uh, almost five years ago, we started. Well, that's awesome, Ellie. And I was going to ask you how you got into beekeeping because it's a pretty niche part of agriculture. And like you said, it's also attached to food production. So I guess my next question is, how did you take your passion for the food industry and kind of incorporate that to light that fire to push towards finding innovations in beekeeping and the pollination realm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we were encouraged to think about what we could do to help the industry, uh, one of the more interesting things I'd found was uh, a few researchers that were using sensors to study beehives and technology and uh, with my co-founder, Wyatt, we figured there's got to be a way uh, we could bring that to uh, the commercial space and to the industry. Um, but it really wasn't until we had started interviewing commercial beekeepers and growers until we really landed on what would be the most helpful for commercial pollination uh, and what we're doing today. So everything I've learned and everything we've built at the business, we've learned from just talking to the industry about the problems they face and what would be helpful. So let's take things over talking about the B Corp. What exactly are you guys doing at the company? Maybe a little bit more information about your Verify technology. Yeah, so uh, Verify helps growers uh, and beekeepers assess the hive quality of the hives used for pollination. Uh, so we use infrared image analysis to uh, predict the colony size inside the hive. And so why this is important is our growers uh, use this information before pollination to make sure the hives that they've rented from the beekeepers are strong enough to complete pollination and to make sure that they're getting the value that they're paying for. And Ellie, I think that the infrared stuff is super interesting. They're using it, the this infrared technology across multiple species of livestock and obviously in beekeeping. So can you just dive into that a little bit more about what the infrared technology really does and how it works? 
Yeah, absolutely. I never thought I would learn so much about thermodynamics um, than I have in the last few years. Uh, it's quite fascinating. So since bees are their own heating and cooling system inside the hive, we've been able to map uh, the thermodynamics inside the hive to population. Uh, and so what we're measuring with that thermal camera is it doesn't, it's not x-ray, it doesn't see through the hive. We're actually measuring how the bees are heating the surface of the hive. Uh, and the reason that they heat the hive is to actually incubate their eggs, uh, much like a, uh, a chicken, let's say that's actually nesting, um, or any bird that's nesting incubates their eggs on the nest. Uh, so it's, uh, Pretty fascinating combination of physics, biology, and statistics. That is a lot to take in. And honestly, I'm not sure if my brain could handle anything like this. So props to you, Ellie. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about the grading aspect because on your website, you're, you're talking about grading and I, I am not familiar with bees or beekeeping. So can you just inform us on what grading is? Yeah, absolutely. So grading is this process of when we're checking uh, the population inside the hive. So uh, you'll hear hive strength, frame count, grading, colony size, number of bees. It's all the same thing. Um, and this is really just when the hives are getting checked before pollination. Um, that's uh, you're basically you're giving the hive a, a grade just like you would a paper in school. Gotcha. Very interesting things that I am learning here with you, Ellie. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to talk about who you guys are are helping and who you're working with. Are you, you know, just for commercial beekeepers or bee farms? Or are you also working with the little guys? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually primarily uh, sell to the growers. So we're selling to the growers who are renting beehives from the commercial beekeepers. Although we do have uh, commercial beekeeper and broker customers that also want to make sure that the hives they're shipping out are going to make grade, uh, meaning are good enough quality to keep their business relationship going. Uh, so we actually primarily work with the people who are needing bees to grow crops. Um, but we at the moment do not work with hobbyist beekeepers uh, anymore. We used to with a former life and a former product. Um, but with our logistics um, and what we do, it makes more sense to focus on the commercial space because it's a, a big ocean to boil. It certainly is, Ellie. And when we're talking about, you know, the grade and the quality of, you know, these hives, do you essentially cull the weaker bees out of the hive? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So you're actually uh, the best way to think about it is uh, and the way beekeepers think about it is the organism is the hive, not the individual bee. So an individual bee would be more like a body part or a cell inside of the actual organism, which is the whole hive. So when we're identifying a weak hive, it means the all the bees, uh, there's just not that many of them. They're not growing very quickly. Um and they're not going to send enough foragers out for pollination. So what a grower does is if they have too many of those weak colonies, 
they'll actually work with the beekeeper to get more hives placed, or maybe they'll contract with another beekeeper. Um, so it's a really crucial uh, point to make sure they're reacting to those weak hives and replacing them with stronger ones. Gotcha. Gotcha. That is interesting. And I know he's saying that it's interesting, but it, it, it genuinely is. And I'm kind of mind blown at all of the things that, you know, go into beekeeping and all of that fun stuff. But Ellie, I just have one more question for you. And that is, where do you see the B Corp going in the near future? I was wondering what time frame you were going to give me there. Um, yeah, so uh, near future, we're actually excited to uh, bring Verify to several new crop markets. Um, we have been focused on almond pollination, but are doing pilots in several other crop markets. And I'm just been quite fascinated and it's been a joy to learn from these other growers and um uh, figure out how we can take our learnings from the almond industry and uh, help growers of other crops uh, optimize their pollination. Uh, so we're it's a seminar we're doing at the World Ag Expo as well. That's kind of our next big thing is to um, you know spread these efficiencies to other crops. Well, Ellie, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast and, you know, talking about yourself, talking about the B Corp. It's very interesting to learn about it and the Verify technology, but congratulations on all the success with the B Corp and for being named a 30 under 30. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again there to Ellie for coming on and talking to us about her past experiences and where it's gotten her now with the B Corp. I think their Verify technology is quite interesting. When I think of ag technology, of course, I think of like the big rigs and, and that kind of stuff on farms, not so much of the infrared technology that they're using to you know work with their beehives. I think it's quite interesting to say the least. It certainly is, Ashton. We're going to be featuring a ton of these interesting I mean, folks, it's called 30 under 30 because these people are under the age of 30. So it's pretty astonishing some of these things that young people in ag are doing, Ashton. I am right there with you, Delaney. As, as two young people on the podcast, I think that we can promote this quite well, but you're a lot more uh, successful than I am. But uh, folks, if you want to keep up with the series, you can do so at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcast feeder. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.